0: Be in chapter 25, we'll probably do 22 verses or so. Um, in chapter 24, last week, we uh, we saw God confirm His covenant. Um, you remember that? If you were here, we saw the ceremony, the covenant ceremony that God uh, enacted on Mount Sinai with uh, Moses and the elders and the... Um, For lack of a better way, the priests, Aaron and his sons, though the priests hadn't been established yet. And uh, we saw this elaborate ceremony during which they did a lot of things. They worshiped, said, come up here and worship me, bow down before me. They read the word of the Lord. Remember, Moses wrote down all the laws, all the commands that God had given, and he read those in the hearing of the people. They affirmed that. Then the blood of the sacrifice was shed. Remember, they spread the blood. Moses spread the blood on the altar that he built, and he spread the blood on the people. A covenant meal was shared. They had a covenant meal at the uh, on the mountain with God, uh, signifying the inaction, the ratification of the covenant. And we ended last week in the last part of chapter 24 uh, with Moses back up on the mountain. This time by himself with Joshua. Uh, And Moses entered into the glory cloud that was on the mountain. The people saw it as fire and smoke and all that on the mountain. Moses entered into it to speak to God. After six days of waiting, God commanded him to come closer on the seventh day. And he began to speak with God. And then the last thing we saw in chapter 24 was it said, And Moses stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And now for the next several chapters, uh, from 25 actually all the way up to 30, 31, uh, what we're going to be told through this whole thing is what God told Moses for those 40 days, for those 40 days and 40 nights. Um, And what he's going to do basically just in a synopsis of all the chapters that we're going to go through, he gives him very, very specific instructions for the building of the tabernacle and the furniture of the tabernacle. Uh, God is going to give Moses an exact blueprint, really. He's going to tell him exactly every specification, every measurement, every 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 minute detail of how not only the tabernacle is to be built and structured, but how the furnishings in the tabernacle is going to be, be structured. Uh, all the things that are in it, excuse me. And Moses, um, uh, (coughs) most people find this section, 25 through 31, um, let's just face it, it's just boring, you know, it's just boring, you're reading through it in your Bible time, and it's okay, and now we're building the lampstand, and now we're building the showbread table, and now we're building the, and it's just a big long list of building all these things, right, and so, uh, if we're honest, a lot of us in our Bible reading, even if you're reading through the Bible in a year or if you're on a plan, you know we kind of skim through this section just because don't think there's much application here for us. I hope to dispel that rumor, uh, that thinking over the next, um, over the next several weeks. Um, because in Hebrews 8, we're not going to look at it right now, but we will all through this, In Hebrews 8, we learn that the earthly tabernacle, the pattern that God gives Moses, the blueprint that God gives Moses, is patterned from a heavenly tabernacle. uh, And it is, as it were, God's own throne room. So God has given Moses, giving Moses through these chapters, basically a a model of what exists built not with human hands, but with God's God's own creative power, Uh, Many people have described it as the heavenly tabernacle or the throne room of heaven. uh, And the specificity of all the instructions that's given to Moses... um it points to a reason for these things. God's not just willy-nilly giving him it needs to be this long and it needs to be this wide, and it needs to be... He's not just doing that randomly and arbitrarily. He's doing that for a purpose because every single element, every single thing that is in the tabernacle and the, the specification of the tabernacle itself... Um, it points to something. It points to a heavenly tabernacle and it also points to a coming fulfillment that would be the embodiment of these things, of the table of showbread, of the altar, of the Holy of Holies, of the tabernacle itself. And that, that fulfillment is Jesus. Jesus. Yes. <clears throat> Always the right answer in church. But God begins the instructions for this tabernacle. So Moses is on the mountain. He is in the glory cloud. Joshua's back off somewhere else. And God is speaking to Moses. And he begins the instructions for the tabernacle in a very, very, very strange way. So what we're going to do, let's read verses 1 through 9 all together to get kind of a full-orbed picture of what he says first. And then we'll go back and take it apart and see what application we have for ourselves today. So it says this in verse, 20, uh, verse 1 of chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tan ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting, uh, gemstones, uh, for the ephod, which was the priest's the priest, uh, garment and for the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So, in beginning the tabernacle instructions to Moses, he's telling this to Moses, who will then go and tell it to the people. The first thing that God commands is that offerings be taken up for the tabernacle. Okay, Moses? First thing we need to do is take up a collection. It's time to pass the hat, and he says that in verse one and two. Lord said to Moses, "Speak to the people of Israel that they may take up a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me." Make sure you see this; it's an offering to God. Twice he says it's an offering, a contribution for me. It's not just for a building project. It's not just for a tabernacle. Of course, that's what it's going to be used for. It's going to be used to build a tabernacle. But God defines it to Moses as an offering to him. He says it's a contribution for me. Now, we've seen God in Exodus specifically do some miraculous things, hadn't we? What are some of the miraculous things we've seen him do? Part in the Red Sea. Water to wine, water to wine, the girl. Blood. You in the wrong test. Water to blood. You can turn the water to blood. Yeah, the Nile. Turn the Nile to blood. All of the, all of the, uh, the plagues of Egypt. Uh, we saw manna from heaven. I mean, you just go on and on. There's just. God has miraculously provided over and over and over and over and over, and over for his people. He's, a, he's able to do amazing things, and that's just of no doubt to protect his people. Could God have performed a miracle here and just sent the people a fully built tabernacle? Yes. Why does he require offerings and, in fact, the people to build it? I don't know. Test their hearts. Yeah, test from their heart, to give from their heart to give from their hearts, a the test of their heart. It would be what else? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, an act of worship, act of thanksgiving, uh test of their faith. Um, I think all I think all of those are true. It, it would be for them an act of faith, of course, an act of obedience from his command, it'd be an act of worship uh, as they gave for this thing. You know, God is allowing his people here to be part of God fulfilling his covenant promise to dwell in the midst of his people. They wouldn't have had these things if God hadn't moved the Egyptians to... Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a minute. She said they wouldn't have even had these things if God hadn't given them to they them, plundered them. the Egyptians for them. Absolutely. So God is going to accomplish his purpose to build this tabernacle in fulfillment of his promise to dwell with his people. But he's going to do it as he grows his people in worship and faith and obedience and all that. <laughs> And as He uses His people to actually, you know, sew it all together and build these things and do these things, God is going to use His people to accomplish His purpose. And notice what you've already said. God doesn't demand His people do this. He demands they give a contribution. He commands them to do so. But He commands the people to give an offering as each person's heart moves them. Meaning to do so voluntarily. He tells them to give as they're moved to do so. Now, later in the law, as we if we go through, if we were to go through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and those kind of things, God is going, God will specify amounts that his people should give for different things. So um, you know, in the promised land, once they're there. They were to give 10% of the gross back to God. It was used to support the Levites who didn't have land. that weren't given any inheritance in the land. And then another on top of that, another 10% was to be given to support the temple worship and, and all that kind of thing. So there were times in God's law where he did command his people to give regularly faithfully and in certain amounts. But here he calls for just this special offering, a special contribution to be given just as each person's Heart moved them to do it, or led them to do it. How did God know that the people's hearts would be moved to give? Because He knows everything. Because <laughs> He does know everything. That's true. Could could the people have thwarted God's could pe- the people have thwarted God's purpose by saying, "No, nah, we're not going to do that"? No. Why? Because he's sovereign and he is moving in their hearts. He will, the, it says, the heart of the king, what does it say? Uh, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord or something like that in, in Proverbs. That's what I, like said. So their hearts will be moved by God. But here's another question Why should they give? No, we know because he's commanded it, that's enough. But why should they give other than that? Well, he's taking care of it. He has. He's taking care of her. It. Well, it's so his anyway. Huh? It's his anyway. It is most certain. Both of those answers are exactly true, and both of those are what we're going to talk about here. God rescued them from slavery. He showered them with treasure from Egypt. Uh, He delivered them from their enemies in the Red Sea. He led them through the wilderness. He provided food. He provided water. He gave them the covenant. He provided atonement for their sin with the blood of the covenant. Showed mercy all through the journey in all of their rebellion and all their stuff. I mean, if God commands them to give of their stuff, they should know that He would provide for their every need. God is providing, really, yes, he provided the gold and silver and all that for them as they plundered Egypt before they left. Absolutely, he said if he provided the gold and silver for them. They're slaves. They wouldn't have had anything. Yes. Did someone too that you know you tend to take better care of your stuff than you do other your stuff? I do. <laughs> Not you. Oh. Uh. <laughs> She said, you tend to take better care of other people's stuff than... What would you say? You tend to take care of your stuff better than other people's stuff. You tend to take care of it better than you don't. You know what I'm saying? Because it's not your stuff, but using your possessions too. It's God's possessions. Yeah, yeah. But they have... I'm just it's not engaged, but I'm trying to think of where... Investment... Well, that's true, I guess. They're investing in the temple. It's Technically, it's not their stuff, but yeah, they're, they're, they're being used to accomplish. God is using them as his instruments to accomplish his promise, which in itself is just an honor and a, and a privilege and an opportunity. He's giving them, I mean, he's growing them in their faith, to, giving is an act of faith. For sure, especially if you're a nomad and don't know where your stuff's coming from and picking up manna every single day. So he's growing them in their faith. He's loving them, giving them an opportunity to worship, giving them an opportunity to demonstrate their faith, to grow in their faith and their trust, to be part of the work that he's doing in fulfilling his promise. So as they gave from the heart, it was an act of worship, an act of glory to the great God. And it's no different today. It's no different today. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 it says, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So basically the text is saying, in this context, he's talking about sending money to Jerusalem for the saints that are hurting in Jerusalem, but he, he says you should give cheerfully in Generously and sacrificially, because God is able to make you uh, to provide for you, to give you sufficiency in all things, and make your work abound. And so, as we work through this this tabernacle building process instruction through these chapters. We're going to see many, many parallels uh, to how we give today, how we serve today, how we engage in God's work today, how we're used in God's work today. We're going to see lots and lots of parallels to to the church. And in verses 3 through 7, God defines exactly what must be given. He says, this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tan ram skin, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. So. He gives them the command to give from the heart, but then he gives them a list of what will be needed to build the tabernacle and all the furnishings in it, even the high priest's breastplate and the ephod that that Joshua would wear uh, with the gemstones in it on which were inscribed the 12 tribes of Israel. Now all these are kind of broken into categories. So first, in verse 3, you got precious metals, gold, silver, bronze. Then you got skins and, or you got fabrics and yarns, blue and purple scarlet yarns, fine twine linen. Then you got animal skins and the woods and the oils and the the ingredients for the incense and then the precious gems um, and, and for the priest's garment. And In this, what we're seeing, we're going to see how these things are specifically used as we walk through the building, uh, the instructions for building the tabernacle. But there's one word in here that I want to bring to your attention just because it's a really weird word and it's a weird translation. And if you're reading your own Bible in your lap, you you see it's probably not the same as what's on the screen in the ESV. And that word is goatskins in verse 5. You see that? How many of you have a different translation for that word in your Bible? What do you got? Badger's Badger's skins. it does not show sea cows Mine is Sea cows? The hides of sea cows? You've got an old NIV, don't you? Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. That the new NIV says the new NIV says fine leather. I like that. one. You like that one? Fine <laughs> huh? Durable, Durable leather. Huh? Durable leather? I'm in verse 5. Okay, I have porpoise skin. Porpoise skin. You know what a porpoise is? Dolphin? Yeah. So, what does yours have? Manatee skin. Manatee skin. You got a Holman Christian standard, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> So the only reason, normally I'll just say, well, this word could mean this or it could mean this, and we don't, but when there's such diversity of translation, I usually bring that to your attention, because we need to know, it's a lot of attacks on the Bible where they say, we don't know what it means. So the reason, this Hebrew word is uncertain. The word is tukashim, if you care about those kind of things. In the ESV, it's goat skins, King James, it's badger skins. NIV is durable leather. If you have an old, what is it, the 85 85 NIV, it says the height of sea cows or something like that. The NET says fine leather. The New American Center says porpoise skins. And Holman Christian says manatee skins. So I'm going to tell you quickly why there's such a diversity, and I'm going to tell you what I think it is, which is just an opinion. So the Hebrew word, this word, it's uncertain as to what it means, and that's why you have such diversity. Uh, The reason it's translated so many different ways is because it's very similar. The phonetics is very similar to other words in cognate languages. So, for instance... In Aramaic, there's a word for dolphin that sounds exactly like this word or just like this word. And that's why many say it's porpoise skin, it's sea cow, manatee skins, and so, uh, something like that. Uh, and porpoises, I, th- this is stuff I read this week, so don't hold me to this. It says porpoises are common in the Red Sea. Their skins are used for clothing by the Bedouin. So that, that's, I guess that's a fact. I don't know. But the word is also sounds uh, a lot like and its uh, root is a lot like an Egyptian word for leather. And so that's why you have another slate of translators saying, no, this is this is leather in some form, durable, fine leather, all, all those kind of things. What do you what do you think? What do you think it is? Leather seems a lot more likely for <laughs> in the, the desert. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> that's true. And that's, I would I would think, and this is, listen, this is just a guess. We don't know what this Hebrew word means. I would think it's leather. Some form of leather. Uh, because they passed the Red Sea a while back. You know, so unless they were harvesting porpoises and manatees back then, I don't know where they would get those things. But make sure you understand that's just a guess. That's just a guess. We don't know. And the only reason I bring that up is because, when you look at different translations and you see such a variety you're we're tempted to think uh, well, all these Bibles are just changing. Got, no, that we, we've come across a word here that doesn't have a rich etymology in Hebrew. And basically they're just trying to, to find a cognate word that would, would explain what it is. I, I haven't looked later. So we're going to see lots of instructions for the tabernacle. So I haven't looked in the later passages. This word may appear again and we may get a better idea in context of what it was used for that might shed some light on that, but I figured I would bring all of that to your attention. If you don't care, just file that away from stuff I'll never need to know. (laughs) So as we progress through the instructions, we're going to see more how these things were used. Gold and silver and the stones and the leathers and the skins and the hair and the yarn and all. We're going to see how all that is used, so we'll see that when we get there. We've already said it twice in here, so you already know the answer to the question. But where would newly released slaves get gold, silver, precious gems? They would get it from Egypt. Egypt. They got it from Egypt when God uh, plundered the Egyptians and gave them all those stuff. So as has already been said a few times, God gave them what they have. And now he's asking for a voluntary offering of what he gave them back to himself and that's true of the gold silver the gemstones and all that kind of thing but it's also true of everything in this list everything in this list and they were to bring wood from the trees all around them that God had made they were to bring cloth and spices from plants or cloth from skins that that came from animals that God put in their flocks or that God created in the wild uh, they were to bring oils and these ingredients for incense that God created from the plants that they were among and all those things. So we see that, that all that God told them to contribute um, came from God's own provision for them in one way or another, whether it was just creation itself or whether he specifically moved to give it to them, as he did with the Egyptians and their gold and their silver and their gemstones and all those kind of things. What does that principle teach us today about our giving? Yeah. God, everything that you have is because God has given you. If you work 45 years at your job harder than anybody else work, it's God allowed you to have the job. God allowed you to have the strength and the longevity to work. God has given us everything. Everything we have is a gift from God. Uh, I had a, I remember a pastor one time, he was very vocal, like, like Cameron's kind of obnoxious when he goes to games, like like the youth's basketball games and and baseball games. He came to Sophie's basketball game one time, and they all thought that he was her dad because he was up in the stands going, "Wow, ah, Sophie!" <laughs> And I, I knew a preacher that said one time, somebody asked him, like, "Why you, you're kind of acting a fool. You need to be more dignified. He said, God gave that child legs to run them bases. I'm going to cheer for God's work in that child. <laughs> yeah. But this teaching here, this, this contribution deal, it, it also shows us something else. It shows us something else. Each person was called to give, remember, according to how their heart moved them, but with this list of things to give for the tabernacle, they were being called to give according to what they had. Amen. So notice, notice that on the list, okay, they're very expensive, valuable things. There's gold, silver, gemstones, all those kind of things. If you had those, if God, were you were part of the people that plundered your neighbor in Egypt and you had those things, you would give those things. But not all people had gold and gems, every single one of them. If a poor man's heart... Was prompted for him to give to God's work to God's tabernacle. All he had to do was go cut down a tree, go cut down a wood tree, and bring the wood. You know, if uh, those with flocks, you know, if they had flocks, they they could bring the hair from their goat. You know, they could bring the they could sacrifice the goat and bring the skin. They could bring ram skins. Um, there's a man with a really weird name. His name is Petraeus Dathanus. He, made, he had this quote. He said, In the construction of the tabernacle of the Lord, the poor people who donated goat skins or hair were as welcome to God as those who donated gold, silver, and gems. So the idea of you just, you you, you got to be extravagant in your, no, that's not the idea at all. God said you do it from the heart. And he gave them a list of things that needed to be given. You can't give gold. You can't give gems. You give something out of your flock. You don't have a flock? Go cut down a tree and bring the wood. You, you are able to be involved in the work of God in building the tabernacle. And that, that principle holds true today. You know, you are, we are to give as God has blessed us to give. Um, and, and what he has given. So, you know, the the guy on TV that says God's telling you to give $1,000. That's, no, no, he's not. He's telling you to give from your heart from what he's given you. You know, whatever that looks like. That's what he's telling you to do. So this is um, this is pretty, it's pretty applicable to, to where we are today. Each was called to give according to what they had been given and according to how their heart led them. Um Those principles apply today. We're to give generously, we're to give sacrificially, and we're to give cheerfully. And if you can't do those three things, then God says in 1 Corinthians, keep it. Keep it to yourself. And then God tells them what these gifts are to be used for. Verses 8 and 9, we already saw these, but he says, And let them, this is what you're going to do with all this stuff, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Now, the tabernacle, we all know what that is, right? Supportable a portable structure, uh, big tent with a courtyard. How big was the tabernacle? Do you know? I mean, we're going to find out because he's going to give us the specifications, but most people think of the tabernacle as just this huge structure. It wasn't that big. It wasn't that big at all. Maybe a quarter of a football field. It wasn't that big at all. So it was a bigger tent than all the tents they were living in, but it was a tent with a courtyard around it, you know, a thing around it where they would come and offer sacrifices, they would come and worship, they would come and be in the presence of God, and it represented God's presence with his people. Now, it isn't that God requires a building or a tent or anything like that. He desired for the people to make a home, a dwelling for him to locate their tents around his tent. If we walked further through the Mosaic um, books, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as they move, there's a specific way that their tents were to be structured around his tent. It was all meant to point to a picture. Um, He would quite literally dwell with his people. They would live in tents. He would live in a tent. Of course, it would be a big ornate tent, but he would live in tents. And and we get further uh, as we get further into the tabernacle uh, and all the schematics of what he tells them to do. We're going to see more of all that. But fundamentally, the tabernacle tabernacle represented uh, two important things at this juncture. So first, it, it demonstrated his holiness and his majesty. It wasn't just an ordinary tent. It was going to be elaborate it was going to be costly it's gonna those those goat skins would be dyed and and they would be colorful and the gold and gemstones and all the things would be be there it wasn't just an ordinary tent Uh, it was made with the finest things and it was uh, entering into it we'll see it was sacred it was probably a very intimidating thing and so he calls it his holy place. That's what the word sanctuary means. and Let, let them make me a sanctuary. A, a holy place. A, a place that's set apart. Um, set apart and sacred. To be used sacredly. It was to be used for his worship. And the other thing it shows us is that it shows us God's closeness with his people. Verse 9, he calls it a tabernacle, which is the word that we use all the time. Anybody know what tabernacle means? just means a dwelling place means a dwelling place that's the that's the blessing of the covenant i will be your god you will be my people i will dwell in the midst of you do they actually go into the tabernacle? huh do they actually the people actually go into the chapel? they go into the courtyard of the tabernacle they wouldn't go into the inner into the inner sanctuary yeah so this uh this points to the fundamental really fulfillment of god's promise you know bible makes the Bible makes explicit connection between the tabernacle of God in Exodus and the coming of Jesus Christ. So in, first John, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we read these verses all the time. It says, The word of the Lord became flesh and dwelt. That's our word. The Lord, word of the Lord, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He, he tabernacled among us. He, he is the tabernacle of God. God gave his Son so he would dwell among us. And the Son didn't just pitch his tent among us, as it were. He took on flesh and blood to dwell among us. And even now, even now, in, right now, today, Christ Bodily form is ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, but God still dwells among his people. Where? In our hearts. In our hearts? In the church? Absolutely. Absolutely. Both of those are true. Both of those are listed in First Corinthians, I think. The one I listed is specifically referencing the church, but he does say in another place, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He says, do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. He's talking to the church in Corinth there. So as we get more and more into the intricacies of the tabernacle, we're going to see each part of the tabernacle, each piece demonstrates something about God's nature, about the coming fulfillment in Christ. But in 10 through 22, God begins really the instructions for how to build this thing, and he does it in a very strange way. He begins not with the tabernacle, not with the tent, not with the outer shell or the, you know, the schematics of the frame. He begins with the Ark of the Covenant. He starts right there and tells them how that they will build this thing. He says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its four feet. Make sure you see that. So all the pictures of the Ark of the Covenant have the poles on the side. They're not on the side. They're on the feet. The Ark was raised up above the poles as they were carrying it. Two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it, on the feet, on the four feet. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the Ark to carry the Ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the Ark. They shall not be taken from it. They were permanent. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you, which is why it's called the Ark of the Covenant. So it would seem really more appropriate to start with the dimensions of the structure, the tabernacle, the frame, all that stuff. Why does God start with this one piece found inside the tabernacle, the ark? It's James' covenant. Yeah, it's because it's the symbol of his presence. It's the housing of his covenant. It is the most important piece in the tabernacle for sure. It's the very center of the tabernacle. So as it were, God is going to begin in the center and work his way out, describing, describing how the tabernacle and the furnishings in the tabernacle is to be built. It was located, as we said before, in the Holy of Holies. So God started from the inside out. So let's go back to Verse 10 and take them just one step at a time basically it was a plain wooden box two and a half cubits by one and a half cubit by one and a half cubit a cubit anybody know how long cubit was you people one gone one to the one Noah's Ark thing you should eight 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 know how long huh 18, inch, 18, 18 inches it's roughly 18 inches because it was measured from the elbow of a grown man to the tip of his finger so it's 18 to 20 inches or so and that's how they measured it. So, grown man from elbow to tip of finger, that was a cubit. So, yes, you're correct. Um, the arc was basically a rectangular box. And based on that, if you, if you base it from 15 to 20 inches right in there somewhere um, as a cubit, it was four foot by three foot. I, I don't care what yours saying. <laughs> 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 roughly, roughly. Let's so if you look at if you look at the floor, each one of those squares is a foot. So you count one, two, three, four, and then one, two, three. The arc ain't very big, is it? Yeah, Yeah. So it's not very big at all. And it was one and a half cubits high. So about three foot high. So it's not a very big, it's not a very big thing. I don't care what you saw in Indiana Jones, it's not that big. It's not that big. <laughs> But it's not just a plain wooden box, really. It was to be overlaid completely in gold, outside and inside. You see it? You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make a molding of gold around it. And so it was to be covered in gold, and there's lots of... Suppositions as to why you can probably guess it was reflective of God's majesty, His glory. Uh, later, we're going to see that it was it was a symbol of His presence, but it is where His presence dwelled as well, and so it was seen as His throne, as His footstool, as. You know the place where God God dwells. So it is overlaid in gold. It was to have four feet. King James Version says four corners. That's not correct. It was to it to have four feet. It was not to sit on the ground. It was to sit on those feet, uh, and those feet would have rings that were fastened to it. And through those rings were uh, poles made of wood, but also that they would be overlaid in gold as well. So. The poles were never to be removed; they were permanent, and that's not a minor detail. Do you know why? Because yes, if, if you touch it, you die. Yes, yeah. We'll we'll get there when it says that. It doesn't say it here, but that is a fact. The poles were how it was to be carried. And it was the only way that it was to be carried. And later we'll see there were only certain people that were to carry it. It wasn't just anybody could just reach over and grab it. It was certain people uh, that were uh, permitted to carry the ark as they were moving from place to place in the wilderness. So, this was, it doesn't mean, the ark was not a magic box, okay? It's like you open it, like, what is it, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and all the magic comes out. It's not a magic box. It's a symbol of God's holy presence. And just as God declared the mountain holy when His presence descended on it, you remember it? The Ark of the Covenant was to be holy. There is an account later in 1 Chronicles 13 and 2 Samuel 6 where God showed Israel just him how important them poles were. You know what happened? A man named Uzzah or Uzzah. And what happened to him? Yeah. Anybody want to give us a brief synopsis of that story? <laughs> she said, not really. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, that's exactly right. David is bringing the ark back to Israel after a long period away where it was, where it was taken first and then put up. And, and he had good intentions, I think. Uh, but they were carrying the ark the wrong way. They, were, they had it on an ox cart. And they were transporting it that way rather than carrying it by the poles, which God commanded. And at some point, it slipped off the ox cart. And a man named Uzzah with, I think, the best of intentions reached out to stop it from hitting the ground. He touched the ark and God struck him dead. God killed him on the spot because the ark of the Lord, the ark of the covenant is holy to the Lord. Now, what we, we hear that and what we say is that's not really fair. I mean... For, for all we know, we, we're not told why he did it, but the assumption is he was just trying to keep it from hitting the ground. He, was, he loved the ark. He wanted it not to hit the ground. But the assumption that Usa made, uh, which was completely wrong, was he made the mistake of thinking that his sinful hand was cleaner than the dirt that God had made. And they shouldn't have been transporting it on the ox cart in the first place. So these poles that we're talking about, they're very important. Very, very important. Any questions, comments? Verse 16 tells us why it's called the Ark of the Covenant, because testimony of the covenant, the tablets will be there in, in the covenant. We'll More of that in a minute. He'll repeat that in a moment. So let's read verses 17 through 20. We're only going to 22, so we're almost done. He says, you shall make a mercy seat. Some of your translations may say atonement cover. Uh, mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherub on its two ends. The cherubim cherubim shall spread out their wings. He's talking about how the statues look. They're on the mercy seat overshadowing the mercy seat, the wings cover the mercy seat, with their wings, their faces are to be facing one another, and they should be looking at the mercy seat. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. Now, this lid is not made of wood. Everything else he said, make it of wood, overlay it in gold. This lid is not made of wood. You shall make the mercy seat out of pure gold. And there's a reason for that. We'll get to it in just a moment. The lid is called the mercy seat. Or atonement cover um, the noun that's used to to uh, of mercy seat comes from the root word that means atonement Um, this would be more than just a lid for the box it would be a place where where mercy and atonement was made for the people it would be the very place of the presence of God Uh, In Leviticus, when the law is given in a little more detail about this, we're told that the high priest would go in uh, first and make atonement for his own sin uh, with sacrifice, with animal sacrifice. And then after he had done that, we're told in Leviticus 16, uh, it says, Then he, the high priest, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull for his own sin, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So the blood was put on the mercy seat to make atonement for the people. It covered their sin and averted the wrath of God for breaking the covenant law, breaking the covenant stipulations that what was inside the Ark of the Covenant. So underneath the lid was the law of God. And when God's presence descended down onto the mercy seat, you're going to see it several times where the, the presence of the Lord descended down on the tabernacle to meet with Moses. Uh, when God's presence came down to dwell between the cherubim, it says, upon the mercy seat, between God's holy presence and God's holy law, the covenant was the blood of the sacrifice that mediated between the Holy God and the law that Israel had broke it uh, when God came down to dwell with his people God would not see the broken law in the Ark of the Covenant he would see the blood covering the mercy seat as atonement for that so the beautiful mercy seat by itself pure gold was not sufficient it had to be sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice so yes yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. She asked if they sprinkled it with blood often, you know, at, at you know intervals anyway, at least once a year, uh, it probably got gross after a while. We'd probably have to clean it, you know. I don't know. I don't know. That's a good that's a good question. I do know that I I do know that um I do know that we often fail to understand the picture of the horrendous nature of sin uh, in all of these in all of these rituals and all of these things. Because you imagine, let's fast forward to the temple when Passover would come, they would sacrifice two, three, four hundred thousand lambs in two days. You can imagine the smell. You can imagine the sights. You can imagine blood running out of the out of the out of the city of Jerusalem because of all the I mean, it was it was not pleasant and it was not good. So yeah, uh, we often fail to we often fail to recognize that the sacrifice was indeed it, it would remind them of what their sin cost, for sure. I don't know if they cleaned it or not. If they did, I would think only the high priest or only those that were supposed to move it when the temple when the tabernacle moved would do so. Uh, but that's a question I don't know the answer to. So he says the mercy seat was to have two golden cherubim on it. What are cherubim? Angels. They're angels. angels. Now listen. <laughs> cherubim not sweet are not fat, cute, little angels with diapers. <laughs> In fact, many people don't know this. There's a lot of shows. I've got to hurry up or I'm not going to get done. Like... Touched by an angel or all the pictures of angels and the paintings of angels and the little statues people have of angels I mean I'm not I'm not just against it or whatever there is no angel anywhere in the Bible that is spoken of with feminine pronouns or names every angel that you see in scripture all of them are all spoken in the masculine so are there female angels I don't know but they're not in not in the Bible they are not fat little cherubie <laughs> cupids. They are, they are powerful and dangerous. And every time somebody sees an angel in the Bible, they're terrified. And they have to say, don't be afraid. You know, um, Cherubim specifically are the powerful guardians of God's holiness. They're attendants of the throne of Almighty God. Uh, I'll tell you why I say that in a minute. The only previous mention of cherubim or cherubs in the Bible, there's more after, but only previous in Genesis, was in Genesis 3 when they're guarding the way into the garden. And what did they have with them? Flaming swords. swords. Yeah. So Genesis doesn't tell us about their appearance, but just what they did. They were stationed as guards uh, with flaming swords to protect the garden. Now, if you want to learn about cherubs, In Cherubim, you can go read Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10. And in those pictures, Ezekiel sees in chapter 1, they're not called Cherubim. They're just described as these living creatures with four faces and eyes and wings. and, And just, I mean, is not something you want to run into in a dark alley for sure. But in chapter 10 of Ezekiel... He describes them again, and he calls them cherubim. And so uh, uh, running into a cherubim is, it would be a scary, scary thing. So these are not just cute little chubby things, statues on this deal. These, These are powerful beings, protectors of the holiness of God. And in Ezekiel's vision, they're around the throne of God. Many people think that the four living creatures in Revelation around the throne of God are also cherubim. Uh, There's a debate about that, and I'm not getting into it tonight. But what you see, especially in Ezekiel's vision, is these creatures with eyes and wings and four faces and scary. They're they're around the throne of God. Uh, But it was between the two cherubim on the mercy seat that God's presence would dwell. The Shekinah glory of God would dwell. The Ark of the Covenant was a representation of, of the heavenly reality of the throne of God. It's a picture of heaven where God is surrounded by his holy angels. Uh, and there, it says their heads were to be, uh, their heads were to be down, uh, looking at the ark, facing each other and looking at the lid of the ark. Why? Because they cover their eyes in the presence of a holy God. Uh, And this was incredibly serious, incredibly serious. And the most holy place, that's why it's called the most holy place, uh, because it's where the very presence of God dwelt. It's where the blood was brought to bring sacrifice. It is where God uh, will meet with Moses. Uh, throughout their journey in the wilderness last verses we'll look at tonight it says and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that i shall give you there i will meet with you and from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony i will speak with you about all that i will give you in commandment for the people of israel And that's exactly what happened as they wandered in the wilderness. In Numbers chapter 7, it says, And when Moses went into the tent of meetings to speak with the Lord, he heard a voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. God met with his people there. That's what the tabernacle is all about. How can sinners gain access to God who is holy? Though they've broken his covenant, they've broken his law, they've broken his commands. God can't be in the presence of sin. How can God dwell with us in holiness when we are sinful? And that points to the fulfillment of the tabernacle, of the mercy seat, of the blood, of the Ark of the Covenant itself in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 9, it's the last verse we'll read. He says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He's talking about the heavenly Holy of Holies, the heavenly tabernacle. Christ entered there once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing not a part-time redemption until we can get back with another sacrifice, but an eternal, once for all, completed redemption where God is now pleased with his people based on the blood of the perfect sacrifice. So we're going to be talking about the tabernacle specifications and all the tabernacle furniture and all that. But what we're going to do at each piece, at each point, is we're going to be pointing to the reality that it points to, which is fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Questions, comments? Okay, I won't be here next week. I'm going to the convention in New Orleans. Um, Evan Hathaway is going to come and teach you guys. and. Y'all be nice to him. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. And God, just for just the beauty and the unity of your word. God, even in my own devotional time, my own reading of the Bible, there's so many times we get to passages like this. and. Lord, we just, we just run through them thinking that they're not for us. They're for ancient Israel. They're for ancient Jewish people. God, these, these, are, these are Christian scriptures. They point to a Christian gospel. They point to the Son of God who came and tabernacled among us. So God, help us to learn what you were prefiguring with your people. Help, help us to learn what this means for us about who you are and about what this tells us about your nature and your promise and your covenant and the fulfillment that we have in Christ. Help us to be enthralled, even by passages such as this that are just basically schematics for building furniture and the tabernacle. For we know that it all points to the one to whom our soul is bound to and to whom we love. And we thank you for that and we love you in Jesus name. Amen. amen. I didn't find that one, you know?